Podcast, what's good? Uh, Want to make sure you're tuning into our hit show, which you know, as COVID evolves, is not necessarily now daily, but multiple times a week. Please follow me uh, at uh, at Twitter. Actually, in general, before I go into this promo with T with Gary V, which is the promo, I need you to watch T with Gary V. It is some of, I would argue, you know how I like to say my mom thinks it's the best. I think it might be the best content I've ever done. So please tune in. But also, please make sure you're following me on Twitter. If like, if you've dropped Twitter, like, like if you add your notifications to my account on Twitter, so you get push notified. Like, Twitter is, besides my two one two nine three one five seven three one, Twitter is absolutely the pulse of my universe. And if you're not following me there, you're missing out on a lot of stuff. Anyway, tea with Gary V. Multiple times a week, usually nine a.m. to ten a.m. Eastern time. Big shout out to the West Coast. See a lot of you in the six a.m. fam. Uh, just emotionally, strategically, the best content I've ever put out, in my opinion. Uh, tea with Gary V. And please go to YouTube and catch up on prior episodes. Just type in Tea with Gary V. Tea is in not like Mr. T. Tea is in like the stuff that I drink in the mornings because I'm from Russian descent. Tea with Gary V. Check it out. This is the Gary V. Audio Experience. Hi everyone, welcome to VaynerX Marketing for the Now. Welcome to episode number eight. I'm Andrea Sullivan, CMO of VaynerX, and I'm here with Gary Vaynerchuk. Good morning, Gary. Do you got your coffee? Uh, I do not. I'm just going right into it, Andrea. I'm just- You're just uh, gonna go right, you got that adrenaline going anyway, I have a feeling, Gary. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Today we're gonna circle the globe without getting on a plane. We'll be hearing from C-suite leaders, nonprofits, and entrepreneurs, all world changers. Don't forget to check out past episodes at VaynerX.com, and we're going to keep the conversation going today, hashtag marketing for the now. So first up, we've got Dean Aragon. Dean is an international marketeer who comes with, to us live from Switzerland. Dean has held incredible roles at organizations like Shell and Unilever, um, serving many different brands and living in many, many different countries. Dean is also the proud husband and a father of five. And Dean, we are so happy to have you join us this morning. Good morning and be you guys in Manhattan and, and uh, good afternoon here in Europe. Thanks for having me. Dean, good to see you, my friend. Hope you're well. Before we get into it, big shout out to Jeff Rambo, who is up at 4.38 this morning with a sinus infection, but is now thrilled because he gets to watch Marketing for the Now. So, and everybody else, hashtag Marketing for the Now uh, to keep up with the conversation. So Dean, listen, obviously, um, I'm extremely fond uh, of you. We've interacted quite a bit over the last half decade. I I think uh, your origin story, like where you were born as a kid, I think would be really really impactful here. We have so many different types of people watching from C-suite executives to board members to entrepreneurs that, you know, have a thousand dollar a year business right now. So with a huge gamut uh, of individuals, I actually think your story is quite inspirational to get to the top of the marketing game on a global level. Uh, Why don't you tell everybody where you're from and then maybe take me all the way up to the point where marketing became something that you were about to get into. Yeah, thanks. And again, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I was born, raised, educated, uh, grew up, fell in love uh, in the Philippines. And uh, I was pretty happy to stay in the Philippines. And, uh, you know, I, I studied 
management economics from a top university in the Philippines. My original dream was to be the chief economist of the Philippines. But one, one day uh, in career week, uh, some of the folks from Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and Nestle, you know, passed by our university. And I kind of heard for the first time what brand management and marketing were about. Um, and I said, I think that's more my gig. I think that's more what I want to do, and uh, and 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 that happened, and so I joined first uh, companies like JWT at the time, uh, J. Walter Thompson, and uh, and I fell in love with you know the world of advertising, and eventually I said, well, you know what, I think I can be a client, so so I, I became a client, and uh, and and I decided to to really. So when you heard from the biggest companies in the world from brand management, the first foray though was into agency life an iconic creative shop like JWT. Did you go account side, strategy, creative? Where did you go? That's a great question. In the, in the mid to the late 80s, you still did everything. Right. <laughs> see, you didn't have those hyper specializations that you see today. So I did a bit of um, you know, uh, accounts, uh, account strategy. There was no such thing as a strategic planning fully developed yet at the time. Uh, so you, know, you couldn't give that to all the clients, only the, the, the most special ones. You did a bit of media planning. And sometimes when the clients didn't have any budgets, you were the on-camp talent as well. You know, you're gonna have to do with this because you know. That must yeah. have been whatever your face was in. I promise you, oversold. <laughs> certainly, that, certainly, uh, certainly less rounded than it is today. Dean, as a, as a senior marketer, how do you keep your ear to the ground? I think one of the things that it's always impressed me is in our conversations, whether at can or in a boardroom, there's a, you know, there's just just a small group that I think of when I think about ear to the ground marketers. What's your, is it reading? Is it, is it podcasts? Is it going to meetings? Is it your own marketers internally? What's allowed you to stay, you know, for lack of a better word, relevant and in tune when very senior marketers tend to, unfortunately, because they're pulled in so many other directions, lose their feel for the trenches. I think the number one quality for any aspiring marketeer or advertising professional or creative entrepreneur would be uh, curiosity. And I've never stopped being curious. I'm in fact obsessed with looking at, you know, what's making people, you know, really live a full life. Um, what are they uh, passionate about? And I try not to project my own perspectives on things, but I try to look at it through their lens. And, and I think that's really informed the way I see things or I way, the way I see things that they see. Because otherwise you tend to uh, impose your own worldview on, on things. And that's the biggest mistake that I think any advertiser or marketer can have. So always stay curious. And, and I think it's a little bit of everything, right? Podcasts, how, how, how I, I read how books. Do you, how do you balance the focus group of one, back to your opinion, yeah. while recognizing that there are some judgment calls you need to make like, what, what is that balance? Cause I do hear, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of people are like Gary, you talk a lot about like putting out a lot of content so that the consumer can give you indicators, quant and qual seems great, but also seems like you have a lot of your own conviction and you just kind of do stuff. What is the balance? And I, and I you know, actually, before I say anything, how do you think about that? I think first of all is to assemble, uh, you know, a variety of sources around you. So I talk a lot about the X-Men approach to teams where you, know, you have to be careful to curate the people around you that have uh, very different superpowers, certainly very different to yours. You can't afford a number of clones, otherwise it's a gigantic echo chamber. Uh, and at the end of the day, you, know, you make a call on the basis of what you have seen, and that's why experience, you know, I've been around for a long time, 
helps a lot, but also things that are not necessarily your view. Uh, I often tell uh, people who work with me, you know, please scare me. Because if I'm not scared, if I'm not uncomfortable, that means you're just reinforcing my worldview and my belief system. And that's dangerous. That's going to be very narrow. What about uh, distribution of consumption? Um, how do you see the current landscape between podcasting and newspapers and OTT and, and outdoor television commercials, long form video, TikTok? You know, back to your, you know, your, your earlier answer kind of inspired me to ask this question. You know, marketing's evolved quite a bit, you know, throughout your career. The fragmentation of attention, you know, obviously, you know, I have so much historical respect for JWT when I think about, you know, a TVC down and you do some matching luggage on outdoor and print and away you go. The fragmentation is extraordinary now um, for the aspiring marketers or for the entrepreneurs that don't play in these waters. How big of a challenge has what the internet and technology advancements um, done to people's attention spans? How big of a challenge has that been? Uh, how much of an opportunity has that been? And what, what is the biggest change? Like what is, the, what is kind of the new skill set that every marketing organization needs to compete? It's, it's, it, it's a great time to be a marketeer, right? Because of all of that choice, but also an incredible challenge to constantly learn. And often, especially for you know, people like me who've been around for a long time, I need to constantly empty my cup of things that I think I know and unlearn a few things and learn a few things. Now, having said that, there are a few fundamentals that don't change, um, such as the value of knowing who you're talking to and really understanding what are the insights I play so that you can respond to the insights. And based on the task that you have to achieve, then you assemble what sort of channels, what sort of content forms and formats do you need to be able to elicit the response you want. What you need to resist is the temptation to kind of play with every widget and sort of every new innovation because you can have all of these whiz-bang sort of techniques, but if you're not clear on the targeting, on the insights, on the strategic objectives that you need to achieve, then you're just going to get lost in the weeds. And I've seen that happen, and, and, and you don't have all the money in the world. So for the, especially for the entrepreneurs, right, you need to be very focused on what do you use the money for and what it will give you the best impact that plays to your business strategy. Let's go to story time. Give me a story or two of your career where... I, I, I put out a film a week ago that's I've gotten an enormous amount of feedback around changing your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, um, Andre, you know, we've been together a couple of years and, and even that time you've seen me, like I'm comfortable with changing my mind quite a bit. And I, I've always been fascinated where people think it's a weakness. My father kind of, you know, would get very frustrated with me. He basically thought once you said something out loud, he was very different than me, Dean, a man of not so many words. So once you said something, you stuck to it until the grave. So we used to have a lot of friction in that. Um, I would love to hear your story on this. A meeting, a moment early, you know, one, one thing I know about you and I, that we share a lot of really, um, I would say energy. So, and the way I think about that then is, um, confidence and conviction. And I've, I've really enjoyed through my career humbling moments because it's kind of what created balance. That experience created balance for me because I did have a lot of confidence. Any early stories of being in a boardroom or seeing something play out or having a marketing campaign that you would have bet the farm on was going to be remarkable. 
I think uh, stories of changing your mind um, are powerful. Anything come to mind as I set you up for that? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot, uh, but I, I guess the, the principle around it is as much as you in, have invested yourself in an idea, in an innovation, in an advertising sort of execution or a, pro a new product that you're developing, I think the, the, the most important thing is for you to understand is it's not so much what you think, but what will the intended audience or, or, or stakeholder or customer think. And that's when I'm as much as, and you know me very well, right? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm super opinionated and I, yep. I invest myself fully in everything that I do. But at the same time, I make sure that that's exceeded by my ability to pivot, especially if I hear and see a something better. And yeah, if you once, don't once have you, that ability, you it, yeah. if you don't have that ability, then you might as well get out of business because then it's just, as you say, it's the, a focus group of one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it suddenly becomes not marketing or advertising or service. It becomes an imposition. Yeah. It becomes audacity. And how can you, how can you impose yourself on people you're supposed to be any, serving any and delighting? Any, any story come to mind? Any story where somebody walks, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of those early, I'm always fascinated by mentorship or, you know, or something out of left field, a junior copywriter says something like, I'm just trying to think of some fun, and any fun stories from the early days of your career within the yeah, agency? Well, or? I mean, when I, when, I was a, when, I was a, when I was a very young brand manager and I was handling a brand called Ovaltine. I think Americans are familiar with Ovaltine. Yep. Uh, this sort of chocolate drink. And uh, I was so gung-ho about an idea in my mind and, and, and in an agency briefing. I was saying, you know, guys, I think we can do this. We can do that. What do you think? And a very junior uh, sort of creative person uh, at the time at the agency said, um, we could do that <laughs> or we could do this. And of course he was very clever uh, because, you know, instead of saying, you know, that's just not nonsensical, which, which my ego might not have been able to take, you know, being such a young sort of, you know, cracker. you know, firebrand. But he was very clever in saying, well, you know, we can do version A, which is your version. I'm sure the movie in your mind is, is, is very compelling, but maybe it's not just about your movie. You know, yeah. what about, this movie and that struck you that struck me because and again i had the, i had at least the sense to really understand hey it's not about me yeah it's about them it's about those who are trying to serve and delight yeah. and when you and when you lose that at different stages in your career i'd say that's the beginning of the end yeah yeah in the last couple of minutes what about during covid has changed in your consumer behavior from a media consumption or a purchasing consumption. I'm so fascinated that we've been in this state for long enough now that things have absolutely triggered into changing in all of us. Is there some new OTT? Is there a new format? Is there a new app? Or have you bought something that you've never bought before online and now you're saying to yourself, oh man, when we go back to normal, I'm gonna always buy pancakes online. This is fantastic. Well, I, I, can, I can start by saying that everything that has to do with doing webcams like this is completely out of stock in Switzerland. <laughs> so, so I ordered a webcam April the 1st when I, uh, I already foresaw it's going to be a protracted yeah. sort of marathon, right, rather than a sprint. And so anything that has to do with setups like this will, is, is in high demand. And I think it will be in high demand for the future. And I think anything that has anything to do with virtual experiences and engagement people are becoming more and more comfortable with because we're going to have to live with this for some time. 
Yes. And, and so how do you live through it and with it rather than sort of working against it? But I also have started to buy things uh, much more uh, through online and trust that, you know, and this is the interesting thing. That's when the power of reliable, credible, trustworthy brands that you know stand for quality and performance kick in because you don't have a lot of time to really check it out. So I bought a, I bought something online, which I normally would, you know, thoroughly inspect. You know, I grew up in the Philippines, right? I always want to make sure that the, every cent counts. Uh, and so I, I was surprised at how, how my ability to trust that the brand, that the product, that the system is not working against me. So, and, and I think that's, that's a critical uh, enabler. Dean, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks for having me and uh, have a lovely summer to everyone. Bye for now. Thank you, Dean. Our next guest is Kas Marte, the CEO and founder of Conbody, and he's an incredible entrepreneur. Kas began his fitness journey in his prison cell, where he used only the tools that he had around him. And when he got out, he launched Conbody, a prison-style boot camp that I can tell you firsthand will get you in shape and help you find <laughs> you never knew that you had. Kas has been featured in over 200 major media outlets, and we're so lucky to have him. Welcome, Kas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kas, good morning. Thank How you, are Gary. you? I'm good. I'm good. I just taught a workout this morning, so I feel good. You're ready. Um, yeah, yeah. Kas, I think, you know, why, why don't you give some context to the audience? Tell us about your, t feel free, take five minutes to uh, establish your incredible story. Yeah, so Combody is a prison-style boot camp, which, was the, which we hire people coming out of the prison system to teach fitness classes. It was all derived from my prison experience. I was born and raised in the Lower East Side, still live here, probably going to die here. Um, and, and I grew up in a neighborhood that it was very, very drug-infested in the 80s and 90s. And as a, as a kid, I saw that as an avenue of making money. Um, my mom immigrated from the Dominican Republic when she was six months pregnant with me. She ended up working in a, in a factory. Uh, she babysat me under her, her sewing machine. And that's how I lived. Um, and, and as a kid, I would see other kids, you know, with the Nintendos, Atari, uh, Game Boys, and all that stuff. And, I, and that's what I wanted. I wanted other stuff. Um, and every time I asked my mom for something, she was like, me, I can't afford it. And so that would frustrate me. And I would do anything. I was collecting like can't going to door to door in my building, collecting bottles, cans, changing them for nickels in the bodega, opening up the fire hydrant, cleaning cars. Uh, but I seen the guys that were on my corner who, you know, wore the chains, you know, had the girls, the cars. Uh, and I saw that they were making money. There was lot, it was crazy how uh, there was heroin lines down the block, you know, people buying drugs off of them. And, um, and I saw that as a, a avenue of becoming rich. Um, you know, I, I remember in school, a teacher said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I wanted to be rich. And, um, and I saw these guys making money. So I followed their experience. Uh, and, and I started selling drugs at 13. And by the age of 19, I was making over $2 million a year running one of the largest drug delivery services in New York City. At 23, I was arrested, sentenced to seven years. And uh, that's when I found out I had all these health issues. My cholesterol levels were through the roof. The doctors and the physicians said in prison that if I didn't start exercising or eating correctly, that I could probably die of a heart attack within five years. And wow, that extreme. I was, 
I was 23 years old. They placed me on medication and I was like, uh, I'm not going to die. What are you talking about? And, uh, and I went back to my cell that day and just started thinking about my son. Uh, my son's 13 now. Um, and I just started thinking about that. I wanted to come home for him, you know, and, and I was like, I can't die in this place. And so I went out to the yard and, uh, and I started running laps. People would call me fat Forrest Gump joking around. And, uh, it how much did you weigh at the time? What, I was 231. Really? Um, came home 160. Wow. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, I'm always fascinated by mindset. When, when you got to that level at 19, did you just delusionally believe that you were invincible and that the system would never catch you? Or did you have kind of that underlining um, anxiety that you just kind of knew at some point the gig was going to be up, but you were so deep, there was just no way to get out? Uh, both, both. But I, I think I was also delusional that I, I felt legal. I felt like I could do whatever I want. I was not going to get caught. I was not serving. I was not dealing drugs. Uh, everything was being passed over to me. So we changed the way we sold drugs. You know, back in the day I grew up and I saw individuals like standing on the corner doing drugs. I made a whole delivery service. I made 10,000 business cards. I went up to every person that I thought used drugs on Wall Street and went up to these fancy bars. I wore a business suit. I had everybody on my team wear a business suit. And then I had a connection where we were renting cars um, for really cheap. And, uh, and then everything went down. Um, yeah, I remember having seven cell phones because each phone only held 1,500 to 2,500 contact numbers. And so every time I had a, so those were my clients and, and we were actually like literally picking up the phones with two, two like, hello, where you at? 23rd and 3rd, 14th and 5th, wow. give me 10 minutes, give me five minutes. Uh, there'll be a Toyota Camry on downstairs on the corner of the, the Northwest corner of this blah, blah, blah. And that's how we was operating. So I had a whole dispatch service. I had about 20 cars, uh, two shifts. Um, it was just a, a crazy, crazy time. Uh, I thought I was not gonna get caught. Were you stunned when it happened? I was surprised, I was caught off guard. Yeah, I was caught off guard. Um, I remember the day that they, they caught me. I was, it was, I remember, I don't know if you remember, but you gotta remember the next house. And so we were operating with yes. ourselves and, uh, <laughs> and we were sending, yeah, yeah. And we we're like telling our drivers like 23rd and 3rd and I'm sending all my drivers um, to, to different spots. And, uh, and they were, and, and they were, I don't know if you remember, but it used to get caught and be like, beep, yep. beep, when it used to not work. And, and I was like, damn, this guy's not picking up and the customer's waiting on the corner. And uh, my, my drivers were getting caught one at a time as I was sending them because our phones were being tapped. And Got so I'm it. sending the, the feds with, you know, picking up my drivers one at a time and it was just one shift. So it was 10 of us. Um, and then at the end of the day, they came right at uh, the stash house. Uh, I, they called me coming out of the stash house. Uh, I, I got caught with about a kilo and a half of Coke and money and all this other stuff. But and the rest um, is history. what yeah. about, what about the next chapter? You, you, you have seven, did you serve all seven years? No, I served a uh, total of six years. And so when, when did the shift happen in your mind? You know, because, uh, you know, I grew up in some interesting scenarios myself. So uh, several of my friends have spent substantial time in prison and, and I'm always fascinated by the mindset. Some people come out doubling down 
like just double yeah. down, like fuck it. And other people really make that shift. When did you make the shift in your process that you're going to come back out and you're going to do it, you're going to do it differently? Yeah. And and how did that go down? Yeah. So uh, towards the end of my incarceration, I I was about to be released uh, in this early release program called Shock. You probably know about it. Uh, it's like ex-Marines turn correctional officers to beat the crap out of you. You save three years to your sentence. Um, so I, I was about to come home early. And, uh, and, and I remember one day uh, the officer calls me down to the bubble and he says, you have to report to the medical unit. So I go to the medical unit. I, I'm thinking I'm going to be doing my teeth. I've been waiting on a dental list for like three years. You, you know, dentists in, in prison take a long time. Yep. Uh, so I go, I go down to the medical unit. And this officer places me on the wall and, uh, and they do random searches. And so he pl places me on the wall. He starts searching me and he starts searching me really aggressively. Uh, he puts my hands really low to the, to the wall and I'm almost like holding a plank. And, uh, and I, I shift my body a little bit as he got between my legs because uh, I felt comfortable. And he punched me behind my head and he said, today's not my day, don't fuck with me. And I dropped down to the ground and um, and I felt like he knocked me out for a little bit. I saw stars and I, I, I got up and I turned around all officers to, to avoid another hit. So as soon as I turned around, they pressed the pin. The pin is this button in this walkie talkie. As soon as that button is pressed, the whole alarm for the whole prison goes off. Mm. And, uh, and they, sent me, they sent me into solitary confinement after they beat me up. About a half a dozen officers beat me up. They shackled me. They walked me to the box. I was about to be released in two months. I was about to be released in two months. And because of this incident, I'm now serving my three more years in prison. My gosh. So I'm devastated. I'm devastated. I'm in the box. I'm pacing back and forth. Uh, I'm in now 24-hour lockdown. It's about 105 degrees in there. There's no AC. There's no fan. I'm walking naked. And um, and this officer walks by my, my door, and he passes me in a, the, the food slot, um, a paper pen and an envelope. So I quickly grabbed that paper pen envelope. I started writing a letter to my family, telling them I need a lawyer, I need to fight this case. Um, this guy's trying to give me you know, another case, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then I closed the letter in this envelope and I realized I had no stamp to send out this letter with. And, and so I felt hopeless, I felt devastated. I started banging the wall, I started banging my head on the wall. And, um, and then I got frustrated and laid on my bed. And it was not until like three, four days in solitary where my sister finds out that I was in solitary my sister's like mother Teresa's child super <laughs> religious type of person uh she writes me a letter and says you know you haven't called home well, I called the prison we found out you're in solitary confinement We're, we got your back everything's gonna be okay uh all I want you to do is read Psalm 91 from the bible and I'm like Psalm 91 I don't need no religion I need, I need a lawyer like I need I don't like fuck god and so I take that letter, threw it in the corner of my cell, laid back there. Uh, and But oh, the only thing I had in my cell was this Bible that she gave me on early on in my incarceration. So the only thing that follows you through your whole incarceration is a religious item. Now, I'm still not a super religious person, but I do believe in a higher power. Uh, and out of boredom, I decided to open up to Psalm 91, uh, which states, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I would say of the Lord, he is my shelter, my fortress, my God, and who I trust. As soon as I read those words, the stamp fell out of my Bible in between my pages. And that was the stamp that I needed to send out this message to my family to let them know about the whole story of what happened to me. 
Wow. And uh, at that at that point, chills ran down my body. I felt like there was something bigger than myself. Um, and I prayed. I prayed, uh, you know, not to go back to the streets. I said, uh, I need to find a different avenue. And and at this time, I already was training. I already lost weight. Fitness was my passion. And I said, God, um, I'm, I want to I wanna start a fitness company. So there's where uh, Combody was all derived. Yeah. Who was your first client? My first client, my first paying client, my first client was my mom. She, uh, <laughs> so I came home, I was living on her couch. Uh, she was renting, she was renting her couch for about 200 bucks a month. And, um, but my first real, real paying client was his uh, CEO of, uh, I think it was real New York. He was, he was a, a, a real estate agent, but he was super wealthy guy was running around the block. And uh, I remember having a broken piece of pipe on Foresight. I don't know if you know the Lower East Side like that. On Foresight in Rivington, there's a soccer field. So I stuck a, a pipe and I'm doing pull-up training there. I got my mom, I got my aunt, I got another neighbor there. So I'm just going after anybody I know from the neighborhood trying to get them to train. And this guy just runs up and tries to do a pull-up. And I'm like, yo, that's my pull-up bar. Like, you got to pay me for that. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. How much do I owe you? And I was, how much do you charge? I was like, I was not even charging at that point. I had no idea what I was going to be charging. And I was like 200. He was like 200 bucks for semi-by private training. I was like, yeah. And so he was like, can I join the class? So we joined a class right after I walked down to the ATM. I was like, yo, boom. I had no contract. I was running the business out of, with an iPhone 4. I had no idea how to use Twitter, Instagram. But you, you missed, know, missed all that. I missed that whole time lapse. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, went, I went from a flip phone to a touchscreen phone. And it was just a whole different world it's just Flintstones getting the Jetsons for me and 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 it just went I mean it basically the skill set that built the first business is the skill set that builds the second business I, I did the same guerrilla marketing tactics I made 10,000 business cards flyers postcards I went to the B train D train F train started sticking them in the little slots ladies and gentlemen my name is Carl Smarte I started Combody a fitness program where I hired formerly incarcerated people to teach fitness classes. I've told my story in like 10 seconds and, uh, and just kept doing that and just kept doing that. And uh, even I was taking Uber pools on purpose, lift share rides on purpose, because that'll give right, me an hoping, opportunity to yep. get people right in front of me. And I'm just pitching and be like, oh, you look like you work out, you know, and then just start the conversation there. A what lot is, of females wearing yoga pants too. So yes. that was my target market. Understood. <laughs> so what um what's with the business now? Yeah, today we've trained over fifty thousand people. We've hired over forty individuals coming out of the prison system, have a zero recidivism rate. Um right now, due to COVID, it's been a blessing for us. Uh we, we quickly pivoted doing digital stuff. We're doing on demand nine dollar a month uh workout videos, ten to twenty minute workout videos. Uh, that grew up to 50% during COVID. And then we've been doing like live stream Zoom classes. Uh, so Amy took a class. Uh, she was out there in the park uh, while Andrea's doing the virtual stuff in the Zoom. So we're just connecting the computer, uh, having people in front of us in the park now, uh, six feet apart. Um, so it's been more of a blessing, man. Do you, feel, do, you feel, do you feel the fact that you, the environment you grew up in made you mentally conducive to shifting and adjusting immediately when shit hit the fan? I, I think absolutely. I mean, I was the first fitness studio that pivoted right away. Uh, a lot of people calling me, they were like, oh, you heard Andrew Cuomo, he says, shut down all gyms. I'm like, 
I have 10 people working out in the studio. I'm like, well, he said 50% yesterday. Now we got to shut down. I turned on my computer right away, sent people a Google uh, video link, and then we just switched over to Zoom because it's just more compatible. But it was something that just clicked right in right in front of me. Um, I don't I don't know what happened, you know, but I, I guess. What, ha- what happened is when you're trained by the streets, adversity and no is as common as success. When you're trained in the classroom, it's a little bit scarier. Yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. Yep. Listen, I, 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 we're going to have to have you back on again because there's so much more to dig into here. Cause I really appreciate you, man. Keep pushing. No, thank you. Thank you, Gary. And uh, I, I hope to see you work out with me. So. <laughs> Andrea's pushing me hard, so I know I'll have to deliver at some point. We'll talk soon. We're definitely going to make that happen, Cass. Definitely going to make that happen. Thank you so much. So next up, we've got David Young. He's the founder and CEO of the Green Monday Group. It's a social venture with the mission to take on some of the world's most pressing crises around climate change, food insecurity, and public health. David will tell you how he engages and empowers millions of people, along with public and private sectors, towards green awareness, action, and economy. He worked. He earned many, many awards, including Social Entrepreneur of the Year by the World Economic Forum and the Schwab Foundation. Welcome, David. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. David, it's a real pleasure. Hope you're well. Yes, um, I've been looking forward to this. Very thank excited. You. So David, uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about what you actually do? Right, so um, we're based in Hong Kong, um, but with footprints and impact across Asia and the world. Um, I started this back in 2012, eight years ago, before too many people were at that time, you know, talking, not too many people at that time were talking about plant-based, food revolution, and you know, what's wrong with the livestock industry and why we have to change. But with all the science uh, have been pointing to the same conclusion, which is, with 8 billion population today and very soon 10 billion, uh, our food system is bound to collapse. Uh, our meat and the system is bound to collapse. Now, of course, little did we know that eight years later today, really, it is completely failing us um, and is creating public health crisis, including, of course, the pandemic right now, climate change. Um, clearly, you know, we are really on the verge of a global disaster. Uh, point of no return. So our organization is multi-pronged. We have our food tech innovation that create plant-based meat analog. Uh, We focus on pork because in Asia, pork is the most consumed meat. So vegan plant-based pork, um, the brand is called Omnipork, is um, one dimension of our business, which is on the food tech innovation. We have another dimension, which is Green Common, and that is our restaurant shop and distribution network. Um, of all the major future plant-based food brands. We have the movement of Green Monday, which is to advocate everyone to go plant-based at least one day a week and use that as a way to create the community and the alignment among a lot of people, not just individuals or families, but really across people uh, globally. And then we also have a venture capital impact on that focus on investing in impact business that share the same mission. So all together, that's the Green Monday Group. Back a little bit further, because I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that um, are watching. What kind of kid were you? Were you a great student? Were you entrepreneurial? Like, how did you 
you know, just a little bit more of the origin story. Sure. Um, I am from a business family. Uh, I'm from an entrepreneur family. My dad, my uncles, everyone was entrepreneur. They built that business from nothing um, in different, different sectors, not in food. Um, they were in apparel, in uh, real estate, etc. But I guess it's the problem solving mindset um, of entrepreneurs that when you see problems, um, you, you, we see opportunities and we see that, you know, how can we address that? Um, in the case of sustainability and climate, I mean, of course, I think today more and more people know the urgency. But the connection I made in the very early days is that sustainability must come with innovation. Um, and innovation in terms of behavior change and solutions to empower people to change. So yeah, that's kind of the quick background. And well, personally, I lived in New York. I lived in New York for over 10 years. I went to Columbia, uh, engineering major. So that problem solving and science mindset uh, First is engineering. kind of a huge part of that background. Green Monday, I think is a super interesting, you know, kind of, I think of your business in almost like a chair, different stool, you know, different legs to build up the whole environment. The Green Monday part, I think is, is quite fascinating because I think for-profit, non-profit, like I think a lot of people miss the, that leg of the stool where you're doing something bigger. It's a halo of top of the funnel awareness, which has trickle down economics to everything else you're doing. Do you agree with that observation? Is that why you did it? Have you felt that? Is that hypothesis right? That is very true. Um, the thesis of social entrepreneurship is that, you know, nonprofit and for-profit, social and business do not need to be mutually exclusive. In fact, they work very well together. There's nothing wrong to have a business that is mission-driven uh, and is aimed to, re to solve social, environmental, humanity problems. Um, the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship is always, you know, that that innovation spirit, that problem-solving mindset. Um, and, you know, combine that with the do-good mentality. I think that really, in fact, I think that's the future of business. Um, you know, it doesn't need to be just, okay, you make money on one end and then you donate money, money after you become successful. I mean, the business itself can be a major vehicle to drive change. Did it, you know, I was very, very, very involved early on in, in kind of a community that sprung out early Tom's shoes. Um, yes. And, spent, and then that's what led me to being on the board of Pencils of Promise and Charity Water. Were those things that hit your radar? Were those things that inspired you or, or created nuances that you wanted to replicate? Very much so. I mean, I think um, when it comes to social venture, um, Tom Shoes is always one of the role model case. Um, and for us, <clears throat> if we just uh, create products, if we just focus on the food tech element, um, when I think, I think there's still a major piece that is missing. And that is, first of all, people need to know why they need to switch. What's wrong with the food system? You know, why, you know, humanity, well, human beings have been eating meats all, you know, all in the entire history. So why all of a sudden now we're in 21st century and eating meats all of a sudden becomes not such a good thing. Now, the other argument, which is also very important, is 
it doesn't need to be a, a binary. You, you have to switch from a meat eater to become a vegan tomorrow. So for us to create the movement of Green Monday, first of all, obviously that's a huge advocacy and education element. And on the other hand is to, is to create a narrative that can be inclusive. So whether people right, choose because, Monday, because, Friday, Sunday, but it, it, a platform it's a, that everyone can join. It's a, it's a gateway, right? It's a stepping yes. stone because, you know, with politics, with, with conversations like this, everything is so binary that we're not giving people little steps. That's, that's totally true. We believe in the power of baby steps. Um, you know, so I tell everyone within my organization and outside that we're not here just to sell a food product. We're not here just to, you know, present products or services. We are here to sell change. But change is intimidating. And, and <laughs> change take, is and difficult. Take, and takes a long time. Speaking about yes. a long time, I've been impressed with how you've rolled out globally. Let's talk about that a little bit. What are the learnings right. and how, did you, how do you think about that? Um, well, first of all, we start here in Hong Kong and the impact has been enormous. Uh, we're talking about now 34% of Hong Kong people are flexitarian, meaning they are meat reducers. Again, doesn't mean everyone is a vegan, but they are becoming active meat reducers. So that's number one. But, but once we get the movement and the initiative into companies, into organizations, whether that is Google, uh, you know, Facebook, HSBC, uh, SANS, uh, Hong Kong University. Once you get into a community or a company, then that can scale, right? I mean, most of these MNCs, of course, they have offices around the world. So then we say, why don't you also implement Green Monday uh, in your Shanghai office, Taipei office, Singapore office, and then New York, LA, London, etc. So it becomes a super scalable, super viral uh, movement. And they can implement this within their cafeteria or you know, whatever environment they're in. So it doesn't matter if you know, we're in the context of a family, a corporate, a school, or simply an individual, everyone can join. And of course, with the power of social media, it just speed up that viralness. David, you know, you have such an interesting mission to change people's behavior while building awareness for the brand and then having the, you know, that, that's an interesting challenge. Actually, I have a little, little bit of a left field question. One thing I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is how challenging a society is when everything becomes politicized. <laughs> you know, literally it everything. It's challenging. You know, I, I would argue, and I'm not educated on this, but I live in the world and I pay attention to the conversation about meat and veganism and all that stuff. Do you feel like people are, you know, there's so much progress when I hear about that number in Hong Kong. Obviously, I'm pretty worldly right. with my travels and my social listening. So I see this movement gaining momentum. Do you, as, a, as somebody who's on a mission, do you worry that it goes from more of like a scientific, conversational, just theoretical, like a real food conversation, world conversation, environmental conversation, do you fear that it becomes politicized where people just decide they don't want to do it because it, it's now on this side of the equation and they blindly are on that side of the equation? Is that, a, is that an overall concern? 
Well, there are always going to be deniers. There are always going to be naysayers. I think that applies to everything. Anything, if, any, any, anything we do. Um, I think the, well, the ironic part is that, you know, anyone, you know, look out, it's July right now, and weather is just chaos. It's, it's, at the last 12 months were the hottest 12 months ever, okay, in the history of the planet. And then obviously we still have the pandemic going on. Um, and then when it comes to animals, African swine fever has been devastating the hawk industry in China and many other countries as well. I mean, these are just hot facts that cannot be denied. So, I mean, for us, on one hand is to create the inclusive movement. We are not trying to shame anyone. We're not trying to demonize any, any Dude, you, company. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about and you used it, shame. I think, you know, I, I, we, we live in a world where a lot of people have become resellers of fear and resellers mm. of shame. And I really am taken aback by you bringing up that word because it's been very much the number one thing on my mind in the last month, that word. <laughs> I, I'm excited to hear you say that. Do you, have you, have you noticed how, how that approach really creates a very quick closed down conversation and kind of like- Absolutely. And, and um, in your space, I mean, I have so many friends um, you know, on the coast that, that I do, in, when it comes to this food conversation, environment conversation, do go into shame land. And I, I find it very ineffective and I'm trying, and I'm very much on board with them and I'm trying to, you know, conversate with them about like, hey, there might be a different tone because humans by nature shut down when that hits them. That's the reason why the narrative is so important. I mean, not to antagonize, not to attack, but rather let's create uh, the new food paradigm that is truly better, healthier, more sustainable for everyone and create food that tastes as good, if not better. Now, at oh, the end I of mean, the day, by, though, the, by the way, on the record, because of enjoyment, by the way, on the record, yeah. you know, because I don't want to use which, I don't know which one it was. So I don't want to get this wrong, but on the record, um, I actually prefer a meat substitute product uh, on, the, on the meat side because of just the texture. It, it, you know, what's funny is I don't think, I think a lot of people say no before they try. And, and uh, I think that yes. there, I think that, I think that there is a large majority of people out there whose palates, you know, I grew up in the wine business, so I'm very in tune with palate. I was taken aback of like, oh, okay, there's some things that I, I don't like as much in this product as let's say the meat version. But ultimately what I realized is, wow, I like it slightly better because of the texture. And, and I, was take, I was fascinated by, I wish more people experiment. You know, I, I, I used to do it around oysters and sea urchins because I was a very exotic eater. And a lot of my friends just said no. And I would ask them, have you ever had it? And they go, no, but I know I won't like it. And that would always break my heart. Um, but I think that's a very important point, David. I think everybody needs to have at least a couple at bats with these alternatives, because they may be stunned that they, forget about everything else, you just might think it's more delicious. We recently launched our vegan spam. Uh, it's called Omnipot Luncheon, it's vegan spam. And everyone who tastes it is blown away. And this is actually a guilt-free version 
you know, that you don't, you don't have to worry about it being carcinogenic or unhealthy or all of that. So um, once you take that into account, plus the fact that they taste great, I mean, actually people are very eager to move to the new paradigm. David, thank you so much for your time. Continue to push. We wish you well. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And before Andrea introduces the next guest, I see a ton of activity on Twitter. If you're just joining, uh, hashtag marketing for the now. We'd love to see you quote the listeners. I see a lot of you taking screenshots. I'm retweeting. So if nothing else, if you want to pick up 100 free followers on Twitter, uh, join us in the conversation. I'm really looking forward to this next guest. Andrea? Thanks, David. We just converted to, to celebrating Green Monday, but we haven't tried the vegan spam. So I guess that's up next. <laughs> So happy to have Elizabeth Windrum, VP of Marketing from JetBlue, join us next. Elizabeth has been working for this iconic brand for almost five years and leading the teams. And she's also worked on other great brands such as Barefoot Wine and Bubbly. We're so excited to have you today, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Hi, Gary. Hey, Elizabeth, it's so great to see you. How have you been? Good, good. How are you? I'm well. So, you know, tell us about your story. I mean, I think, you know, Obviously, the airline industry has been a fact. You know, last night I was with a friend. He's like, how's business? I'm like, you know, starting to put the pieces together. You know, we, you know, and it was painful. We had to do layoffs. We had to do a lot of different things. And he, he's very heavily in the restaurant business. And I said, and I kind of like talking and I'm kind of being empathetic and I see his face. I'm like, look, on the flip side, if I own 50 restaurants or an airline or a hotel, as great as an entrepreneur as I am, an operator, I think I am, there's nothing you can do in this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how amazing you and your executive team are, um, this is obviously an extremely challenging time. How, has, how have you guys and gals thought about it? And, um, and where did your mind go early on? Or maybe not even early on, maybe a week or two or four into it when you're like, wait a minute. Because I, I mean, listen, on the record, yeah. When this all went down, I said, okay, we'll probably be home for two weeks. Yeah. I remember, because I'm always in worst case scenario planning. I'm like, I mean, if it's a catastrophe, we'll be back by the 4th of July. And, I, and to me, that was like code red, mm -hmm. like, impo like everything went wrong. I kind of thought America's a little soft and entitled and wouldn't do the right things. But to me, that meant 4th of July. So I'm, yeah. I'm just curious when it kind of struck you of like, okay, this is actually a, a, a real issue. Yeah, I think it happened like that for a lot of people. It unfolded day by day and we were, became, became more aware of what was happening and what it was actually going to be for me. So my daughter's here in public school, first grade, and school's closed. And that sort of said, oh, uh oh. But the date for reopening was April 20th. And my daughter's birthday is April 19th. So I was like, okay, birthday. And then schools are reopening and that sort of, you know, day by day unfolded that that wasn't actually <laughs> what was going to happen. No. And we all sort of made our peace with it. I'm pretty optimistic. I'm not worst case scenario. So I was like, no, like we're gonna, you know, it's all gonna come together. Um, but I think that really served me. It, from a business perspective, look, I think we, we did what everyone did. We took every decision as we needed to take it to do the best by our business and our customers and most most prominently our crew members here at JetBlue, we need to take care of our people. So you know, we really, we shrunk down. We were flying for essential purposes. We did continue to fly. We continued to, you know, do, do the best we could while ramping down our service. I mean, JetBlue, we're known for 
great service, great experience, you know, the whole, right, the JetBlue promise, differentiating from other airlines. And we stripped that down and it was still there. It was just there in a different form. It's there in the form of the humanity of our crew members and taking care of people who did need to fly. We knew, especially back in March and April, you were on a plane, you needed to be going somewhere. It was, it was important and we needed to take, take good care of you. What what's the vibe right now in the airline industry? Like, what's everyone kind of talking about, thinking about? What's kind of me thinking? So we're hopeful. We're hopeful. Look, I this this whole pandemic has been very interesting because we are in the be there business. We're right. in the personal connection business. So. If you're flying to see family, if you're seeing friends, if you're flying to see the Grand Canyon with your own eyes, not just see a picture of it, you're there for a business meeting, you're there to, to close a deal or meet a partner in person and break bread with them and show them that they were worth traveling cross country to meet, right? And you know, when that's all stripped away, we're, we're sort of faced with an existential crisis of, wait, we're in the be there business and now we can't be there. But I think what we've all learned is that we've been faking it for a long time, right? We've all had our devices and our Zooms and our, you know, I have the Zoom, family Zoom every Saturday night and I see my cousin <laughs> have wine and it's fun, right? And we've all been, we've been on these sort of virtual, virtual school, virtual journeys, virtual travel, I see it all. But nothing beats that real, the real thing, right? I mean, classic marketing line. But, I, and I think that's what gives me a lot of hope about my industry that, what we do cannot be replaced even with all of this wonderful technology, which is great, but it, it hasn't really replaced it. And so I believe that people will get back on planes. I think people are, they're hungry to see their friends and family, especially. That's what we're seeing come back, that sort of friends and family, like I haven't seen my grandma, she lives mm -hmm. in the Dominican Republic, I'm gonna figure out how to get there mm -hmm. safely. And so that's, that's starting to come back. And I think, I do think eventually, Leisure and business travel will come back too. We're seeing it in pockets. People are hungry for it. There's definitely, look, there's a, definitely a segment of people who are, are ready as soon as they believe it's safe. And my job is to communicate what I am doing to save travel. Speaking of that, I've been really impressed with JetBlue's ability to stay on, I mean, fun, humor. I don't know how you position it. I'm consuming it as a consumer. Yeah. It's always had a really light, like I smile when I see JetBlue. Good. <laughs> uh, Good. I really do. I really do. Good, I genuinely, like I can, like a, as an end consumer, I, I feel good. And, and I've noticed serendipitously that it seems like there's a little humor and fun and light still, even during this time. Mm -hmm. a, is, a, is that right? Or am I just seeing an old yeah. piece of content retweeted? And B, yeah, yeah. how do you think about that? No, I think about that all the time. So at the core of this brand is joy joy it's humanity and joy and i mean i i don't let lines of copy get past me unless there's a really strong pun in there so um you know at the very beginning of things march april we had pared down people needed straightforward communication was it you know if they were flying with us what could they expect we needed to just really hit home our safety messages and be very clear about that but we never lose the tone. So you're right, we're bringing our puns back in. We did a BOGO sale for our vacations product this week and it wasn't just a sale, it was let's BOGO somewhere, right? It's always that, because um, why not? 
Why not? That's the brand. And I wouldn't want to ever lose that. It's part of our DNA. So even in a pandemic, we have to inspire humanity. Even in a pandemic, we need to bring joy and throw in a pun where appropriate, right? Talk to me about um, uh, prepping for this a little bit. I saw the 100,000 ticket. Yeah. Yeah, tell, give me a little, you know, prepping for this. Let's remind everybody I'm a DF sure. student, so I'm glad I even got that number right. So, yeah. you know, you know, there was a, a pretty strong initiative around first responders. Mm -hmm. So at JetBlue, our mission is to inspire humanity. And that's, that's, that's real. That's very real for us. That's how we try to behave every day in little ways and in big ways. And during this period, when our business was, was cha is challenged, was challenged, our people were challenged, it was pretty incredible that our team came together and said, how can we help? We always help. And, at, you know, in this moment, it really felt like we needed the help. We needed our business was struggling. People weren't flying. And yet, somehow, our team rallied and said, we can still help. There's always more. There's always a way to give with what you have. And when we looked for that, it was there. And the answer this time was that we decided to support our healthcare heroes here in New York City. We're New York's hometown airline. So we wanted to do something here. It was the up behind me. You can't see. I have a post. I love that. Born and raised in Queens, New York's hometown airline, raised in Queens. I'm also born and raised in Queens, so it's my favorite. So, love that. Have it. I, wasn't, I wasn't born in Queens, but it was the first place I landed when I immigrated to America. So Queen, Queens is always very real to me as well. That's awesome. And the first home of the New York Jets, so that alone puts it at the tippy top. So. Right, right. Well, I'm the official airline of the New York Jets, so we have a lot to talk about. A lot, a lot in common. <laughs> Elizabeth, actually on that note, uh, just segue, because I think this will really yeah. help a lot of people uh, for the last five minutes back to a different constituent that's watching right now. What kind of uh, girl were you growing up in Queens? Were you a good student, <laughs> entrepreneurial, wanted to get into business, thought about you know, mm -hmm. other things? How did, how did your journey, your origin story go? Yeah, so I was a good student. Um, I loved school, I loved learning, I, um, I always, I was always interested in business. My first job was actually though an investment banker. Um, college, I did a double major. I did drama and economics. Fascinating. Right. And then it was 2001 and I needed to get a real job. Drama wasn't gonna help me move back to the hey, city yeah. and That's right. pay the rent. So I became a banker. I don't know why I do air quotes. It was real, I was. Um, <laughs> and, but and I but you know what's funny? It was, it was, that was extremely common course mm -hmm. for men and women of, you know, mm -hmm. for the real youngsters in here, the rest of us probably remember it very easily, but for the real youngsters, like, you know, that's, that was just very common. Like, yeah. you know, even now kids, so much of my content is like, Hey kids, high risk in your twenties, but kids still today, today, 20 years later, want to grow up at 22, 23 and, and don't take the high risk pattern. And to your point, even though you love drama, it seemed impractical to follow yeah. your dream of acting. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that makes a ton of sense to me that you yeah, did that. Yeah, yeah. Thousands that did. Well, I was never gonna be an actor or maybe a producer, but it felt high risk. So I, you know, I became, I went into banking, I went into finance. I loved my time in finance. Actually, no one can ever take that away from me. You learned. It's great, right? I, I have a skill set there, like a secret, secret trick that some marketers, you know, marketers should cultivate. It's really handy when you need to fight for your budget and show an ROI and go head to head with the CFO on something you really want to do because you know 
it's right. You can speak that language. But so, you know, and then I pivoted after business school. I finally discovered that marketing was what I was looking for. I love to tell stories. I love to connect with people. I care about consumer insights. It's, it's, drama, it's, it's drama and it's finance. Drama. It's drama. It's producing and business. It's all of the things. So I was finally, you know, it took me a long time to merge my creative and my more practical mathy interests. Um, and I'm glad that I finally did. I wish I'd figured it out sooner, but sometimes it takes what it takes. P.S. You found it out plenty early. <laughs> I, I'm obsessed with people's relationship with time. Time. Um, you know. You know. When did yeah. you get into? When did you get into marketing? Uh, about ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So plenty yeah. early. Yeah, it was plenty of time. So plenty I'm obsessed early. with it too. I turned forty during the pandemic, which was like, you know, um, interesting times to have to con a lot of time to contemplate that. Yes. I, I think that I think that one of the most important conversations we can have in society is humans' relationship with time. When forty-year-olds recognize that they're not even at half time, mm -hmm. then optimism and patience kick in, mm -hmm. and leads and optimism and patience leads to far better behavior than cynicism yeah. and and insecurities and and lack of patience. And so. Uh, it's something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how to market. Anyway, Elizabeth, you were fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank Pretty you so much. Thanks for having me. See you on a flight soon. Can't wait. Before we go to the next guest, I see a lot of people sharing the comments. Hashtag marketing for the now. We've seen a big influx of people just joining. I guess it's that nine o'clock hour. Um, and so uh, thank you for joining us. We're, we're halfway home, uh, just like uh, many 50-year-olds are. And I will now pass it back to Andrea to introduce our next incredible guest. Thanks, Gary. Our next guest is the amazing Katrina McGee. She's EVP and Chief Brand Officer of the American Heart Association. Katrina just began her role in February as a boomerang, and she's responsible for promoting the AHA's mission across the U.S. and around the world. Katrina previously was the EVP and CMO for Susan G. Komen for The Cure, and she's also a best-selling author, most recently publishing Be Bold, Be Brilliant, Be You. We're so excited to hear from you, Katrina. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Katrina. It's, it seems like you might have taken a JetBlue flight to somewhere very nice. I see you've got a tremendous setting there. I, I'm hoping <laughs> I, that's not a background. I'm hoping you're actually on that beach. I am waiting until it's not a background. But until then, I just add a little zen to every meeting I'm in. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here. Did I hear that correctly? I missed that. You just started this role in February? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's, you know, always trying to bring in as much value for different audiences. There's obviously a subset watching right now that did start their role, let's, let's call it this year. And, and especially if you started in February or March, you get thrown in, how, what's been the challenge and what's been the, the good thing, especially now that you're into your career a little bit, you have context, of actually starting a new role in this pandemic? What's been the biggest challenge and what's been the biggest surprise of here we, you know, of maybe a benefit that you would have never imagined if I said to you as a genie, hey, you're gonna start this new role and then you're gonna be not interacting physically with any of your teammates for six months a year. What's stood out so far? 
Well, the fun thing has been I've gotten to know a lot more people quicker. The pandemic forced us all to the table to work together uh, much more rapidly than, you know, the normal onboarding where you meet a person, you come back, you meet another person, and they put you on the schedule. No, the pandemic said we're all in this together. And so I got to meet a lot of incredibly smart, talented people. I've gotten to source talent from unexpected places because all ideas have been important. And it's been a really wonderful, highly creative time. The challenge is I've only been here for six months. And so the context with which you would normally make decisions during a crisis, in some cases, has been absent. And so I've really had to be present, to listen, to depend on the expertise that's already on the team and try to um, discern the best path, even with limited context. Talk to me, uh, thank you. Talk to me about your incredible career. You know, um, I, I just want to set the tone and then we can go into some more specific questions just to give the audience some context. Yeah, you know what? I've just been having fun my whole life. <laughs> <A> good <laughs> answer. Know, it's great. I graduated from college and started out in oil and gas. It wasn't my jam, so I went back to school and said I want to do marketing instead. Did sports marketing for a little while. Got to work with Emma Smith. That was super fun. Uh, then I went and started my first consulting company because, you know, why not? I was in my early 20s and I wanted to try some new things. So but real quick, because this is important to me. You're, you're in your early 20s. You have this incredible experience with one of the all-time greats, and I'm a big yes. fan of it. And you did have the entrepreneurial spirit. You said, that, hey, let, let me try something on my own. Yeah, I mean, I've always had a side hustle. Listen, Gary, my first job was at 14 years old. I was a tour guide at a historical park. And I was supposed to be watching buildings. Like, they put me in there to monitor so the kids didn't tear up. But I started making up stories because I was bored out of my mind. So the old guy comes around. He's like, you know what? If you want to tell stories, learn the right stories, and you're going to be a tour guide. I love that. Just doing what I love. And that's what I've done my whole life. So I start my own business. Then I'm like, mm, I need to learn a few more things. So I go back in, go to an agency, trial by fire. Then I find the American Heart Association. And that's where, you know, I kind of lit up from the inside out. Because I was like, oh, working toward a cause is my jam. Like, this is the thing. This, I feel, this feels better. Like, getting people educated so they don't die for your yep. soul felt better than selling a cookie or some scissors or whatever it might be. Exactly, exactly. It was my thing. I lit up from the inside out. And so over the next two decades, I went in and out of that. I would stay someplace six years and then I would come out and I would start an online retail business, have a consulting company that I'd go back in and then I'd come out. And so for me, it's always been most important to listen to the whispers of the spirit. I know now that mm -hmm. I am at a place to transform, to elevate, to upgrade, to shake things up. And then I depart and I start my own thing and I try something else. But it's fun you know it is to me it's most important to be present where i'm supposed to be in that moment and see it all as a journey fuck i love your energy i'm fired <laughs> up talk to me about so i started my company a decade ago with the idea of building a platform that would reinvent nostalgia mm -hmm. so I, I can't wait to my next business chapter where i buy historic brands that are maybe not a big deal right now and i reboot them i'm just genuinely excited about that. I, you know, what about for you? I mean, you're, you're, you're getting to refurbish and, and guide now in your new role, a hundred year old brand. Yeah. Exciting for you. Like, how do you think about that? What's the strategy of doing something like that? 
I mean, anybody that really calls themselves a marketer or communicator should be jumping up and down for that kind of opportunity, especially so. when you have a brand that is so rooted in credible health information, trusted among the American people, have walked through so many important milestones in our history, now international. It just, I mean, we'll be 104 years. And I keep thinking about, like, what is that pivot when we get to that moment? How do we, first and foremost, how do we walk people through this pandemic? How are we really present for people and building mental resilience and walking with patients that are trying to manage chronic conditions while trying to avoid COVID, trying to do all the things that we need to do for the people we serve, and yet create this energy and momentum that walks us up to um, this place where we can say, we've been here for like a century and here's what's next i am i'm excited like i'm on fire for it how are you thinking about it practically like where do you think you this organization needs to communicate from a distribution standpoint like where where do you feel the 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 brand the message needs to think about more physical events virtual events twitter television original programming podcast how are you thinking about the distribution landscape yeah. So, you know, I have a mantra for this year, digital first equity always unified voice, that we get more to the point where we create native digital experiences, not just content. I mean, we've been great at pushing content. We have amazing content. You want to know how to manage your blood pressure? It's there. If you want to know how to lose weight, it's there. All of that is there. But I want to create experiences so that community is not defined by zip code, but by interests, beliefs, and desires, because I think that's where the opportunity for us is. No nonprofit worth their salt should be trying to figure out how to have in-person events. I mean, you know, that's the bread and butter of what has carried the industry through from a fundraising perspective. But we have to reimagine that whole approach and look at what do people are what are people willing to support right now? What, how can I be a solution in their life that inspires them to be a hero in our story and a hero in their own story? Those are the kind of challenges I'm looking at now. We have beautiful um, new shows that have been launched on YouTube and Facebook, one called House Calls that brings real doctors and real talk. We take real-time questions from people so we can be of the now. And I love, I love, love, love that experience because there's nothing like hearing from the people you serve in real time. They'll tell you what's important. They'll tell you what you want to do and really inform where you should go next. What's, what's actually, I'm, I'm enjoying this so much. Trina, first of all, we have to hang, Andre, I need to hang out with this woman, so can you please work on that in real life? Um, <laughs> Katrina, what's the biggest thing you've learned personally in, in, like, what's the newest addition to your incredible tool belt from a practical standpoint? One of the things I know we have a lot of people watching this that are CMOs and CEOs of Fortune 5000 companies, and what, you know, they, you know, I'm hearing from a lot of them that are watching because they now, at first they viewed me as crazy. Now they're starting to understand there's a little bit of something there. Just really genuinely curious, biggest insight or learning you've had in the last five years within digital, AKA, oh, this is a good way to do podcast advertising or, oh my God, the new OTT ads that I can be running on Hulu. A very specific or platform oriented or I'm fascinated about TikTok. We can get these teenage girls to help their grandmas. Like, Anything, anything hit you? When I say to you last two, three years, something that's really been added to your tool belt as a marketer, anything stand out practically? 
I can tell you what I have discovered from the last six months. Okay. Which is that one, yeah, one approach is not enough and everything has to be interconnected. And I know that sounds very strange, but most of us have operated in the digital landscape as add-on. You know, we depend on a portfolio mix from a marketing perspective that are in-person hybrid events, experiential marketing that lets you see, feel, and touch. To replicate that same uh, approach in the minds of consumers, we have to be in more places in bite-sized nuggets, moving them along a journey. And that's what I'm really trying to master. I just, my desire in this season is to be a master storyteller that allows you to see yourself in the story as the hero, that joins the conversation already happening in your head where you are. And so perhaps you are watching Hulu and there is something that appears there that is then reinforced on social that allows you to have a hybrid experience when you go to the grocery store, when you order online. I mean, it has to be a full 360 in a digital format in a way that we weren't operating for because this is not add-on. This is, this is, you know, I tell people, quit waiting for normal, create your next. Quit waiting for normal, create your next because this is it. Like, you know, something happened to me in July, Gary. March, April, May, June, I was fine. I'm like, oh, by the summertime, in my mind, like in my head, we were going to start to be on the decline. And then you get to July and you're like, wow. wait a minute. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I mean, like, excuse me, but like, this is it. I have two choices to make. I can create my next or I can continue to wallow and languish and just exist without really living. And I said, no, I have to do better. We got to create okay. our next. What about your next as a human? In this, in this last 120 days, what's, what have you noticed has changed for you either in media consumption or purchase consumption. I'm spending a lot of time on this. I've already asked one or two other guests this today. And I ask almost everybody, Anrick, with Daily. What have you started buying online that is now delivered to your home that you're like, wait a minute, when we go back to normal, I'm always gonna buy strawberries online. This is a great experience. Or what have you picked up on consumption-wise? Maybe because of your commute, you never listened to podcasts, but now you have it running in the background. Or you've, you've bought Disney Plus and you're like, this is fantastic from a media consumption, or maybe you started reading books, or maybe something out like, or, or double down or decline. If I ask you most interesting observation about Katrina the woman in purchase behavior and media consumption during this absolute consumer shift of being home, what stands out? What are the two biggest changes? Well, number one, I cultivate selective ignorance. I mean, like, literally, I try to do that all the time, but now I'm super intentional about it. I've gone back to old school reading actual books, like the kind I hold in my hand. I don't even want the tablet. I order a book from Amazon and I read it because I need to feed myself the positive. You know, my favorite quote is, I dwell in possibility. So in order for possibility to flourish and my creativity to just explode, I got to get to the quiet and away from the noise of what's happening. I'm gonna interrupt you right now for a plug. I'm seeing the insane love that you're getting on Twitter. You know that you're a very lovable character. There's a lot of people discovering you now. Um, in that st sentence, you yourself have a book and I wanna, I wanna explode your Amazon sales right now. So what, what's your book real quick before, before I ask you about purchasing, excuse me, uh, media consumption? Be bold, be brilliant, be you. It is 
the C-suite guide to accelerating your career. I took all the crap out, wrote a really short book and said, this is what they say about you behind the closed door. This is why you're not getting promoted. Here's how you can reshape the narrative around your life in the office and protect your peace. Super it. quick to the point. I love it. I love it. You, the same way you've been drilling this interview and this chat. And so, okay, book, physical, reading, what about anything else that you're either buying or, or consuming? Because ironically, book is both media and product. Just anything else, any other observation of your behavior? The second thing I'm committed to is closing my Apple rings. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm maniacal about it. Like that is how I know it's a good day. For like the last 200 days, I have closed my Apple rings, which means I get up and move my behind every day, Garrett, and I am rabidly, insanely committed to it. I love it. Katrina, you are a delight. That is all <laughs> Thank I got. you. It's been fun. It's been yes. fun. Please, uh, you know, please connect with Andre. I'd love to... Um, I'd love to throw my biggest asset, which is time, against what you're up to and would, would, would love to help if I can. And if you see an opportunity for me to bring you value and the organization, I am, uh, I am raising my hand. Yes, yes, yes. I love it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Andre. Christina. Next up, we've got Ryan Holiday. Ryan is a New York Times best-selling author, an amazing speaker, and a former marketing executive at American Apparel. At the core of Ryan's teaching is Stoicism, a philosophy he has taken from ancient Rome and brought into the workplace, politics, and sports. His work has directly influenced Super Bowl winning teams like. Uh -oh. No, no, uh -oh. no, no, don't Can even. I say it? No, because. New England we will... Patriots? No, no, and we're not. Olympic gold medalists, as well as sitting senators, military leaders, and some of the biggest companies. Oh, good. All right. I got through it. We are so excited to hear from you, Ryan. Welcome. Hey, Gary. Hey, everyone. Hi, Ryan. How I'm are you? Mood. I'm in a bad mood now that Andreas said that. Like, that is like that word, you know, in a, in a world where a lot of words should not be said, I'm trying to figure out how to make that word, that team she mentioned, something that is no longer politically correct to, to verbalize. So, Ryan. It's great to see you. Uh, for, for full disclosure to everybody, because I want to flatter you, when we decided to start Vayner Speakers um, 18 months ago or what have you, Zach Nadler came over from CAA where I was repped and we started Vayner Speakers together and you were at the tippy top of my list, the serendipity of us being in LA at the same time we sat down and uh, I'm just really happy to see you. I'm a, I'm a big fan uh, and I hope you're doing well. It's good to see you, brother. No, I'm doing great. And look, I think, uh, you know, the Vayner speaker thing has been sort of a great example of what we're going to talk about. You'd think that a speaking agency would be decimated by a pandemic, which cancels all live events. But I've been just as, as busy as, uh, as ever because, because you guys have adapted and changed and, and that that's life, right? You know, shit happens and you got to figure out how to keep going. hundred percent. Tell us about your story, right? Give a, give a, some context to the audience. Yeah, I dropped out of college when I was 19. Uh, I, I, I worked for this writer named Robert Green, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power. And, and I ended up through sort of a connection uh, with, a, with a kind of an unnamed, uh, you know, assistant job at a company called American Apparel. And I, I, I worked my way up very quickly, ended up running marketing there. I was running, a, you know, uh, running the marketing department at a publicly traded company in my early 20s. And I watched that company succeed in a lot of ways at marketing, and I watched it destroy itself in a, in a lot of other ways, both from a, an operations standpoint and from a controversy standpoint. And, and 
and am as fascinated as I was by marketing as much as I loved it. I think I, I'm, I, I share, we, we share an assumption, which is the better, it, it, the, the ultimate goal of marketing should be to market your own stuff. You know, if you if you are really good at this, what are you doing selling your services exclusively to other brands? And so for me, the transition eventually was to writing my own books and then starting my own companies, starting my own brands, you know, taking advisor roles in companies in exchange for marketing advice. And I sort of built a, a portfolio and a, a business and a life um, where, where, you know, I do much, much less sort of contract marketing and much more, uh, you know, stuff where, where I'm an owner. Yeah, owned and operated more than uh, renting. Totally. Um, you talk a lot about leadership. You've, um, you, you, I think you have a very strong uh, foundation in its understanding. That's why you've been successful with your books and your speaking. What, uh, what's been your observation about leadership during this pandemic? Have people been exposed both pro and con? Have you, know, have you seen some anecdotal you know, similarities sure. of things that work or don't work? Yeah, look, and I, I think we can talk about this from a sort of a post-political uh, standpoint. Like, it doesn't have to be partisan to say there have been very, very few leaders who have done well uh, in, in this pandemic. Um, I think, you know, I think the NBA has done a fantastic job, and I would say almost every local government uh, and, and, uh, and national government has done, a, has done a poor job, right? And so what, what has... Uh, what has sort of separated the two. I think it's been clear communication. I think it's been, I think one of the things when you look at the NBA's response, and I'm just picking that because it's not as controversial as some of the other stuff. I think one of the things that's defined Adam Silver's response has been a clear vision for what he wants to do. It was an ambitious vision. Some might've said a crazy vision, but, but he figured out what he wanted to do. He communicated about it. He got everyone on board and then he executed it consistently, ethically, you know, uh, uh, and, and intelligently. And so th there's a there's a great uh, saying that the Stoics love that I talk about in my books, and I've been thinking about a lot during this pandemic. Basically, the expression is character is fate, right? So we don't control what happens to us. Nobody knows what, who's going to get lucky, who's going to get unlucky. But the one thing that determines uh, you know, how successful a person is going to be ultimately is their character. And I would put confidence as a sort of a sub bullet under a character. So if you know what you're doing, if you're a good person, if you're consistent, if you're honest, if you're straightforward, eventually you're going to find a, find a way to succeed. Conversely, if you're dishonest, if you can't, you know, can't deal with challenging viewpoints, you, you know, you put your fingers in the ear, in your ear when you hear things you don't like, if you don't care about other people, so on and so forth, you are going to crash and burn, whether it's quickly or eventually. Talk to me about um, your advice for people that are kind of in between what you just said. Let's say somebody's watching sure. right now and they're kind of like, okay, it's, that was a good answer. Oh, I'm a buyer of everything that you just said. I, Sally, I, Rick, feel like I've got a foot in each side. Any, anything yeah. practical? You know, that anything stand out when I say that? Because I've been getting more of that lately, which is like, Gary, what if I'm in between? What if I'm in between? What if I'm in between? So I'm just curious how you think about that. Yeah, I think what, what we're talking about is values, right? It's, it's the tension between values and, and, and profit and success, right? And so I think a, a lot of times people go, 
yeah, sure, I want to be good. I want to do the right thing. I, I want to be one of those people I admire, but I have payroll to meet or but I have this, you know, constraint in this way. And so what I think this pandemic is a good time to, to, to stop and think about is like, what, what is it actually that you stand for? What is it that is most important to you? And you can write that down. You can take Marcus Aurelius called these epithets for the self. So what are the, the words that, 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 you know, is it, is it five words or 10 words? Like what are the commandments that you and your business operate by? And you have to, you have to stick with those rules, whether it's a great market or a bad market, whether the world is melting down or whether everything, you know, you've got a massive tailwind at your back. And so I think when you look at great leaders, ultimately what they what they are putting first is those values. You see that in sports teams more than anything, right? And there's a reason those sports teams, you walk into any, you know, collegiate program, any professional sports team, you're going to see those organizational values printed up and put on the wall. And I think a lot of organizations, a lot of people think that that's cheesy or kind of uh, lame. Uh, they're like, I don't want these motivational posters on the wall. But right. if you don't know what you stand for and if you're not constantly reiterating it, it's really hard to make those painful what, decisions what in, about, under pressure. What about the thing that I've come to realize, like, right, I was doing this subconsciously, yeah. um, but I didn't, I, I'm starting to now communicate it because it became consciously. Everything you just said being held up with consequences. I, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed um, I, that I've always lived but have come to realize, right, I don't talk a lot about, which is why I'm getting these questions, is you've got the posters on the wall. You've you're a good communicator. You've actually communicated extremely well. You're a good marketer, but operationally as a leader, you're not creating consequences when somebody breaks that rule. Like to me, the quickest way for a sports organization or a business to fold is through the lack of execution on holding up what you stand for and you're turning a blind eye to somebody that's either producing or in sports terms, the thing that's devastating in sports is guaranteed contracts. I've seen a lot of coaches inevitably have to get fired because their GM paid a huge amount of money for some player who's not delivering and they don't have the political, they're in this pickle where they want to bench the player to create consequences. Sure. But they can't. Similarly, somebody's watching right now, they're in upper middle management or upper upper management. They wanna fire Gary or Ryan, but they can't because Andrea, the boss, likes Gary or Ryan. And now all of a sudden everybody else is watching that Gary and Ryan don't live that life because there is no consequences, the whole thing falls down. No, no, look, I think that's true as a parent as well. Like, yep. you, you know, you can, you, can say, you can say what you think, but you, you gotta be about it. And, and the Stoics said this, they said, look, don't talk about your philosophy, you gotta embody it. And I think you have to do it in the painful moments most of all, and you, you have to see that as, as sort of making a down payment on those values. You're, you're, you are, you're not doing it just to convince everyone at the company right now, but also to convince all future employees, right? You know, I think Uber struggled with this, right? It's not just a sports thing, but Uber struggled with recruiting a bunch of sort of rock star, but it wasn't culture, right? And it created a culture that ended up getting itself in trouble. And I think that's a pretty common thing. You have to figure out not just what you stand for, how do you demonstrate and yourself from those most of all? 
Hey, Rai, you chopped there for a little bit. Andre, did, did he chop for you as well, just out of curiosity? Yeah, sorry. I, can you guys hear me? Now we can perfectly. Can you four, four hundredth of a second recap of what you just said for the last yeah, yeah, 30 sure, seconds? Sure. It's, it's not just about what you stand for, but how do you demonstrate that, that you do it when it counts and, and that, that nobody, least of all you, is exempt from those rules. Applying influence on brands, something you, you talk about, something in your ethos, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, to me, look, my books wouldn't be successful without influencers, right? No, nobody looks to the New York Times to find out what book is getting reviewed. They look to Instagram and they see what are people that I admire uh, happening to read. And what I think has been interesting about Instagram, let's say in the book space, is like what, what, I, what I think about influencers, I want to be the product that that person is not typically recommending. So, you know, look, people who go to the New York Times book review to find out about books, that's all books, right? And you don't stand out being reviewed there. But, it, you know, an Instagram, an Instagram model who has uh, 2.5 million followers who suddenly recommends a book about philosophy that she's reading, that stands out. It's different. It's not what her fans are expecting. And so when I think about influence, I want to go where, where it's not crowded and I want to go where people have uh, an authentic relationship with those fans. So I think, you know, I read a study that someone was saying, oh, you know, this pandemic, the economic crisis is going to, is going to, you know, be, be, be very detrimental to the influencer space. I think it's having no the exact way. opposite. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm shocked that that was their take. Yeah, because look, the one thing we are doing is using our phones more because we're less busy. We're not driving down highways and looking at billboards. We're not watching television commercials. We're not looking at the TV in the people, airport. We're looking at our phones. I, I, people are like, this is a fad. I'm like, John Wayne sold cigarettes. I'm like, I don't understand yeah. how you don't understand that this is, and that, by the way, that's a modern history example. We can go back, you know, sure. I mean, forever. Brian, what's a, what's, a, you know, you're such a thinker. I like, I, I'm now I'm being selfish the last three minutes. Any early, this, this is not a well, you know, you, know, you don't have sure. every T and I crossed. Any seed of an early hypothesis of something that you're observing is fascinating to you. Well, you'd like this one. I was talking to, a, to a, an SEC basketball coach uh, the other day, and what, what I was talking to him about, you know, these coaches work insane lifestyles. They work like I you. They're, they're at the office constantly. They're, they're, they love the grind. They don't do it because they have to. They do it because they love it. But he's like, I didn't know I could be home this much and do my job. I and so I think, I think it's going to transform people's relationship with their job um, because it's been a radical lifestyle experiment. And there, it, it's, it's allowed us to test assumptions that under ordinary circumstances you'd we never, never be allowed have. to touch. Yeah, 100%. and so I don't know about you, and, and obviously this is a very privileged thing to say, but I feel like one, when we do come out of this, and I, and I don't think we'll ever go back to normal, but as life does resume some of the old things, for me and my family, it's going to be how do we preserve some of this space that we've created? How do we keep? How do we keep some of these lifestyle experiments Let going, me, not going back to normal? Uh, little things. Uh, I was saying to somebody the other day. I'm so excited. The number one anxious moment in my life is when my kids have a school function, or a basketball game, or a recital, or ten or something, in the middle of the day that I'm going to. And I am, of course, maximizing because of my love for what I do, maximizing sure. every minute. So I'm, you know, I'm leaving my office in Midtown. It, you know, I'm literally texting a driver, my driver, Uber, like, okay, 31 minutes, perfect. I'll get there right on time. 
and then I'm trying to run out the office and Amy has to grab me like, hey, Andrea needs you for bar. Like in that two minutes, all of a sudden anxiousness kicks in. Now I'm in the car, it's fucking midtown Manhattan. You know, all of a sudden, all you need is one fire truck, one, you know, and, and 13 to 22 times a year, I have this anxiety and concern. Now I'm gonna leave an hour and a half early. I'm gonna get to the closest coffee shop to the school that they're playing, whatever. I'm gonna Zoom my meeting. And I'm, it's such a little thing, but I'm like, wow, I, you know, I'm gonna completely play this differently. You and I share some similarities in our careers and lives. I, I've been to the most incredible places in the world, yet Istanbul or Kuwait City or Madrid could have been Newark, New Jersey. I fly in, I go to the hotel, right. I sleep, I speak, I go back to the airport because I'm maximizing. Sure. Because whether it's family or, or business, but if it's business that I'm maximizing for, all of a sudden, that 1 p.m. meeting with the big CEO or my team can now be Zoom, right? And all of a sudden, I do have the chance to at least have a meal or see one thing in these places. Okay. So I think there's some significant, significant differences. The biggest one is a leader that I'm excited to impose on, just to maybe put this out there, maybe it'll help some other leaders. I have so many young employees they have unlimited weddings and all sorts of cool shit that happens in your 20s and 30s. I think about my employees that have a wedding. They're ambitious workers. It's the subculture of our society of like what you do in an office. And they're leaving for these weddings, you know, Friday midday, you know, fucking also panicking to get to LGA just to land in, in Austin in time for the rehearsal dinner, right? right. Um, you know, are tired. Like didn't like like you know Saturday morning. Then Sunday they're anxious at the breakfast because they have to catch the 2 p.m. flight. Why? Because they have to be in the office on Monday. That same person now gets to leave on Wednesday, gets settled in with their boyfriend or girlfriend Thursday, maybe even enjoy Austin a little bit. Friday work again on computer, nicely enjoyed their rehearsal dinner, beautifully enjoy the wedding, love to have the breakfast. All of a sudden Sunday afternoon is to catch up with their other friend from college. They get to leave, they get to maybe even do a meeting at 9 a.m. from Austin with the, with the team on computer, then go to the airport. You know, it, like the quality of life for the executive, for the employee, all of a sudden what used to be a Friday afternoon till Sunday mid morning, like very kind of ugh, heavy, intense, not relaxing moment becomes a Wednesday evening to Monday night travel schedule. I think that's going to bring enormous happiness to humans. Yeah, or, or maybe just buy their, their first house in a small town a couple hours outside New York City because their, their commute and their lifestyle is more flexible and they don't have to well, be now, in Manhattan full time. Now you're being, now you're, you know, me and AJ will always regret a thesis we had, which was self-driving cars and technology were going to advance and that the hour and a half outside of Manhattan was going to become the incredible re real estate arbitrage and that yeah. is absolutely now cat out of the bag and happening by the second. So yes, Ryan, I know, I know you're a very, very smart man and that is a very big time observation. I appreciate you, thanks for being on. Thanks man, appreciate everything. We have an incredible guest to wrap this up for anybody who's just joining or if you liked anything that you just saw or some of the comments I know you're gonna enjoy in our next session, it's hashtag marketing for the now. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Andrea, please introduce our final and incredible guest. 
So last but certainly not least, we have Elena Chang, the CEO of Guardian Direct and head of direct-to-consumer at Guardian Life. Elena has over 15 years of experience working with CEOs and executive management teams in the financial services industry. She's the boss. Throughout her career, she's improved client satisfaction and established alternative distribution channels to penetrate target markets. Thank you for joining us, Elena. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. That was an incredible conversation. I was literally like trying to unmute myself and chime in with Gary and Ryan right there. I love that. Lynn, it's great to see you. How have you been? Great. How about you? Looking well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. You too. Talk to me about the insurance industry as a whole. What's, what's the 411? I'm a little bit undereducated. I'm sure many are as well. What's the most interesting things that have happened during this pandemic? Increases, pivots, what's, what's the punchline? Yeah, yeah, it's hard to not talk about digital and insurance. I mean, I think people think of insurance as these really old line companies that are heavily, you know, face-to-face. And certainly, um, you know, what's happening in the world today, you know, Ryan was just talking about how we're doing everything on the phone. And that's, that's the pivot we're seeing from our customers. Um, they are craving and demanding digital interaction because of the way we live our lives today. Uh, and so, you know, for, for us at Guardian Direct, it's been such an interesting time. Um, so for us, it's, it's, I would say, less of a pivot and more of an acceleration of what we've been doing in terms of investing heavily in digital to consumer capabilities. So it's all paying off at this moment because we can really be there for our customers. So for us, it's about like, how do we go harder? How do we go faster to meet the needs of our customers? Uh, and and they're, they're, they're showing up, which is really exciting. What is Guardian Direct, just for everybody, you know, just, just even taking mm-hmm. a step yep. back, just to educate the audience? Yeah, Guardian Direct is, I would say, you know, the, the digital manifestation of a 160-year-old company called Guardian Life, uh, insurance for the people. And, and so what we are is we're bringing a kind of modern digital capabilities around buying insurance to our consumers. Today, we sell uh, multiple products, dental, vision, accident, critical illness, and pet insurance. So think about us in terms of pre- protecting your health and protecting um, you know, things that are important in your lives. Love that. What, um, what, what about you as a professional? Like, just uh, I'm enjoying a little bit of the, uh, the uh, origin stories that we're creating here. What kind of kid were you, like studious, entrepreneurial, um, and, and what really like triggered off your career? How did, how did it go about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, interestingly enough, I think I was both, um, but growing up, uh, you know, probably much more studious because, you, you know, you're raised in an immigrant family that, you know, moved school, their whole school, family school. over here. You know, so you can have a better life, you better get good grades. And I remember, you know, thinking when I saw the rise of Paris Hilton that that could have been me because in fourth grade, I was charging people to line up to be my friend and people were actually paying me, you know, 50 cents, a dollar. And I said, well, my, my life could have gone in such a different direction. But no, um, uh, my mom made, found out, made me give all the money back and, of course, you know, kept me on, on a good path in terms of education. Um, so, you know, I would say I was the kid that did all the right things, um, made all the right decisions. Um, but I think that entrepreneurial kind of upstart was always in there. And now I think, you know, as, as an adult, I get to marry, um, you know, kind of both those passions together. Um, and, and it's a lot of fun. Talk to me about leading from home. 
Yeah. You tough, know, right? you're, you're, yeah, I mean, you know, for some people, very, very tough. Mm-hmm. For some people, remarkably easy. Uh, and then everything in between. What stands out for you um, in how you've been leading, how you've seen others lead? What's your, what's your observations? I think, you know, the, the leadership piece is the same to me. It's just working harder to do it in a different way. Usually, you know, we're in the office together. I can see people. I can reach out to them. I can see their mood. I can really feel it in the office. I can stop by, give them a pat on the shoulder. Uh, and now, now we're in this very virtual world. So you need to be much, much more purposeful um, in your interactions. Uh, and I think much more empathetic. Like we're all dealing with, you know, the benefits of maybe being at home with our families um, and what's going on in our lives. But we're also dealing with being at home with our families and what's going on in our lives. So, you know, there's no such thing as perfection and that controlled environment. People have kids that are like barging into meetings and yeah. trying to get tech support. That's happened to me multiple times. Like my iPad's not working, my Zoom it crashed, you know, and I need to get back onto, onto that class. We've got barking dogs, we've got, you know, uh, fresh direct deliveries, um, you know, where you gotta open the door. It's all happening and, and people need to help their friends and their families and take time off. And, and I think, you know, just really understanding that the whole person has to come to work. Um, and so creating that space a lot. That's do, why do, you th- do you think that's created much deeper connections? Because now all of a sudden, you know, Karen's got a cute dog or you, you didn't know that Rick collected mugs and has a thousand of them in the back. Like, do you think in a lot of ways, people allowing people into their homes has created, I, I've heard some incredible uh, anecdotal stories and actual stories of like, you know, one employee said to me, Gary, you always talk about empathy. You know, my boss is a jerk, but you know, honestly, I have a, a lot more compassion for him now that I've gotten a much deeper look under the hood yeah. of some of the challenges he's I totally facing. Agree. He, he's- I, I totally agree with that. I, you know, I think, you know, with us in particular, sometimes in corporate America, you don't realize how detached you become because you don't want to, you know, kind of get into people's lives too much. Um, and I think this has sort of opened the door for so much of that. I know more about uh, my team members than I ever have. And I do think that the support that we're giving each other during this tough time um, has brought us closer, has made us want to work harder together. And, and I think it's showing in the results. So in some ways, um, kind of a twisted environment, but um, has been really good for us. I like that. So, you know, what I don't think a lot of people understand is you're one of the biggest DTC brands in the world. You know, people think of it, you know, more in makeup or food and things of that nature. What about platforms integration? Like, how do you, how do you think about standing something that, like that up? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, we're, we're looking down that barrel every day. I mean, in terms of um, platforms, uh, you know, you need, you need, as you know, to stand up a venture like this, some hardcore engineering, um, because the insurance, um, the insurance products uh, can be complicated. Uh, so it's not just front end, but it's being able to seamlessly deliver direct instant product. And, you know, the, the industry has struggled with that. I'm really proud to say that, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a guardian direct uh, customer and you come online, you're buying that product and you're, you're walking away with it in that moment. Uh, and that's a big, big shift for most of the players in our industry. Uh, and it's really exciting to be able to bring that to consumers. In terms of how we talk to our customers, also totally different. You know, we're a fully digital model, which means we don't have salespeople, we don't have brokers. Um, we are out there, you know, on Google, on Facebook, um, on LinkedIn, 
you know, working working to to reach the customer and help educate them and help them, you know, understand like what they need to do to protect themselves and their health. Uh, so it's a really exciting time. You know, what we've seen lots and lots of different shifts in terms of the platform. What we're really seeing is that one platform strategy is is. Uh, I think pretty much done. Um, we're seeing customers, you know, taking more time on their journey to make decisions. And so we're ne needing to connect with them on multiple levels, on multiple platforms to get them comfortable, to help them understand the value before they make a decision. What about you, the human? What, what's the biggest consumer shift that you've gone through during COVID over the last hundred plus days from media consumption to purchase behavior? What have you bought online that you've never bought before? And now you're like, oh, I'm not going to Dwayne Reed anymore. I'm buying shampoo like this or what, anything. What, yeah, what haven't I bought online? So basically, <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm locked down um, with my, my parents who are older and in a risk category. So essentially, um, we do nothing uh, outside that we, we don't, don't have to. So literally, I have bought everything I possibly could online. And I think you're seeing that across the industry, right, Gary? I mean, you're, yes. you're seeing uh, digital uh, you know, adoption, acceleration, anywhere from 20 to 50% in, in different industries. And certainly insurance is not, you know, not special to that. People are buying everything online. They're wanting to do everything online. In fact, I think some of the things that they're not doing online, they just can't. Um, and so it's really up to us to really take that next step and bring it all there. Anything really funny for you? Like any like fun favorite new product you discovered? Oh God, you know, it's funny because when you're in lockdown, you buy all sorts of things that um, you never do. Um, so I have to say like, I have more beauty products than <laughs> I have ever purchased in my life. Most people who know me, really simple girl. You know, it's like moisturizer and sunscreen, that's it. I have literally, you know, I, I went out and uh, bought a hair, hair curler, which I never use. I mean, this yep. is, you know, I'm really sharing now. Yeah, um, sharing. yeah exactly. We're, we're trying to double click. We're trying to go deep here. But, it's, um, but I think that's, people are online literally 24 by seven. Yes. And they're on their phones. Totally agree with Ryan. It's, uh, it's fully mobile now. That's, we're seeing this huge shift in our traffic. It's fully mobile. Um, and, and so, you know, people are just seeing things and, and impulse buying. Um, and so being out there um, when they're thinking at night or in the morning, it's so, so important. Um, and, and there's an openness, I think, to consumption that's so different now. And what, and what about media consumption? Any, any new shows, any new platforms? Did you download a new OTT? Are you consuming more I podcasts? I have literally watched everything on Netflix. Like all of it? Uh, probably, um, probably, you know, that's my- uh, Have that's you seen this? I saw yesterday, I, I watched for a few minutes, I'm gonna really get into it. Uh, this whole like the mob versus New York, kind of like talking about the no, late seven. Oh, I need to go. I, I literally binge watched, um, there's this match, Indian matchmaking show. I binge watched that. Yes, I saw that come across. So, I didn't watch it, but it looks so fun. I don't know, I'm, I'm on the like happiness theme because you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of depressing news out there right now. So I've been watching, you know, kind of pick me ups. Um, and I, I've been watching, um, you know, the new season of Queer Eye. So it's uh, lots of fun shows, um, you know, trying to lighten the mood a bit. Well, listen, you were fun and informative. I appreciate you. Continued success. Thanks for closing off this great Thanks show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, talk to you Good soon. To see you. Bye. Andre, take us home. Thank you, Elena. And thanks to all of our speakers today. 
Check out VaynerX.com for all of our recordings and keep the conversation going, hashtag marketing for the now. And join us next week, Thursday, August 6th from 1230 to two, where we're gonna have the who's who focusing on e-commerce. Can't wait to see you. Bye everyone. All right, episode's over. Please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to me. Thank you very much. Hey podcast, Joe from Team Gary here. Today's highlighted review is Gary V's The Truth by Nikki1101. Thank you, Gary, for all your transparency and for cursing, LOL. I love it. You keep it 100, and I love the way you are helping so many people by just telling them the truth, educating us with podcasts, books, Instagram, etc., especially our young generation. May God continue to bless you and your family. Thanks, Nikki. Keep those reviews coming. We could highlight yours next.